sustainable care team, led by Professor Sue Yendall at the University of Sheffield, is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver wellbeing outcomes. We aim to support policy and practice actors and scholars to conceptualise sustainability in care as an issue of rights, values, ethics and justice, as well as of resource distribution. Our Care Matters series includes publications, podcasts and blogs from our team and others working towards sustainable care. Hello and welcome to this episode of our Care Matters podcast. My name is Kate Hamblin and I'm a senior research fellow at, on the Sustainable Care Programme at the University of Sheffield, funded by the ESRC. I work on a number of different elements across that programme, um, including a project exploring the impact of combining work and care and the role of workplace support. So I'm especially delighted to welcome to our podcast Stacey Yefgenemos, who is the Executive Director of Eurocarers, the European Association working for carers. Um, and we're really fortunate to have them as one of our policy and practice partners on the programme. As a trained journalist, Stacey is an EU policy and communication specialist. Over the last 17 years, he has acted as a project advocacy and communications director in organisations promoting and defending the reinforcement and harmonisation of domestic and foreign EU policies in the fields of press freedom, social justice, children's rights, development, health, education and vocational training. Together with Eurocarers Steering Committee, he sets the direction for the Eurocarers Network, develops and oversees the implementation of their action plan. Welcome to the podcast, Stacey. Thank you, Kate. I'm delighted to be part of the, the series and to contribute to it. Fantastic. Perhaps we could start if you would like to tell the audience about the work of Eurocarers. Sure. So Eurocarers is, a, is an umbrella organization, a European network, uh, currently consisting of 73 member organizations in 26 countries. Our job is essentially to convey the voice of informal family unpaid carers at European level. So we work closely with EU institutions and the Commission and the Parliament in particular, and the long list of stakeholders um, active in the fields of care and caring. The nature of our network uh, is that we have many universities and research institutes as part of the, of the association. Uh, including uh, Circle, as well as care providers or organizations of carers who provide direct services to informal carers across Europe. So we, we try and develop uh, evidence-based policy recommendations. And, uh, and as I said before, we collaborate closely with, with the Commission and the Parliament. Yeah, and as you said, we, we've had a relationship as Circle, the Research Institute which leads the Sustainable Care Programme. And as part of that programme, we are looking at many different aspects of care and caring in the UK and around the world. And a part of that is looking at unpaid care relationships. So can you tell us a bit about the role of the EU in policy dialogues in relation to unpaid care? Well, first of all, I think it's important to, to understand that um, uh, EU institutions actually have no legal competency in the field of health and social care. Mm -hmm. uh, organizing and delivering health and social care still remains the responsibility of national governments. And so the role of the EU really is, is to complement national policies um, by helping um, national governments to achieve shared objectives 
uh, generating uh, economies of scale and uh, pooling resources, but also, you know, in organizing uh, exchanges and um, uh, of good practices. And, and in doing so, um, you know, this uh, leads to what I would call some sort of a soft law mechanism. So it's a bit of a name and shame exercise where mm -hmm. when all member states are around the same table to discuss these topics and they showcase their, you know, get good or, or best practices, the Commission and usually stakeholders are invited, uh, have an opportunity to, to nudge let's say, um, you know, uh, ministries in the right direction. So even though there's no uh, real legal competency, um, I think EU institutions have a, you know, uh, leading role in terms of shaping policy developments in our sector. Yeah, so with that said, are, are, are there concerns you have about the impact of Brexit on social care policy in the UK? Uh, yes, I must say um, we are pretty concerned about the impact of Brexit on care and caring, and, and this for various reasons. Well, first of all, the UK, just like many other European countries, is facing shortages in, of staff in, in the care sector when it comes to the NHS, uh, you know, in particular with, you know, when it comes to nurses, various types of, of, uh, of doctors as well as other health and care professionals. And so Brexit and, uh, and, and new migration uh, policy will, will undeniably have an impact on the ability of the NHS and social care providers to actually successfully fill these vacancies. Secondly, the, the policy of freedom of movement and mutual recognition of professional qualifications within the EU also means that uh, many care professionals currently working in the UK actually come from other European countries or EU countries. And so this, you know, based on, on the data we have, includes nearly 6% uh, of the workforce in the NHS in England and about 9% of the workers in uh, adult social care, uh, also in England. And so, um, it's also important to shed light on the fact that that proportion has grown over the years, so which seems to indicate that, that the care sector in the UK is actually reliant on, on, on the rest of, of Europe and, and on EU migrants. I think also um, the expected uh, or potential economic impact of Brexit you know, will probably also uh, continue to, to act as a disincentive for, for care staff to work in the NHS and, and social care. For example, you know, a fall in the value of, of the pound uh, would mean that, uh, that the money uh, that, that staff would earn in the UK would be worth less than in, you know, in their home country, potentially. And that's a real incentive for people to move to the UK at the moment. And then last but not least, when it comes to, um, to family carers, I think we, we just cannot ignore the parallel population exchanges that currently coexist in Europe with, uh, you know, older people from northern countries, including the UK, either moving to southern countries when they retire, you know, along with their carers and young uh, people from southern countries moving to northern countries, including the UK, to find the job. And what that means for family carers is that uh, if, if we consider 
that support measures are you know starting to emerge um, in a growing number of European countries and regions, and and that's the case in the UK where where carers have access to uh, to some you know pretty good support measures. That also raises questions about the portability of those uh, you know transferability of those uh, of those rights. Uh, not to mention the issue of cross-border care. You know, uh, there's a lot of long-distance carers. And so Brexit and new, again, new uh, policies when it comes to, uh, to borders and, you know, and, and, and migration policies may have a severe impact on, on, on all of that. So, yes, we are concerned about Brexit. Yes. <laughs> And perhaps we could talk now about the the social and economic dimensions of care and, and maybe explore how they're interlinked and interrelated. Well, from our perspective, even though uh, more and more policymakers tend to focus primarily on the economic value of care, from our perspective, the value of informal care in Europe is not only a matter of finances. You know, informal informal care and solidarity ha also have an intrinsic value uh, from a moral standpoint, and obviously the crisis we're we're facing at the moment uh, clearly highlights that. I think um, so. Standing and and caring for vulnerable groups, uh, not because of personal interest, but because people need support. It you know has real value, and and this is part of the values of the European Union, by the way. And so, you know, I believe that caring and its impact on both those who carry out the role and, and those who receive care actually engages civil, political, as well as social economic rights. And, and the same applies to the concepts of, of adequate and, and, and good quality care, which from the perspective of many NGOs, including Eurocarers, primarily relates to, uh, to users and, and carers' preferences rather than you know cost effectiveness and 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 we're trying to to bring that those aspects to the to the discussion and it's not always easy now contrary to what people i think uh, may think in terms of uh, the the approach taken by european institutions they are pretty protective of uh, of these values you know intrinsic intrinsic values of solidarity in you know, and, and social cohesion. So, so for example, the Commission is very territorial when it comes to social protection in Europe. But uh, because of the limitations in, in terms of their competences, I'm, I'm mentioned before, the economic uh, argument is often at the top of, of uh, priorities, and and this is something we also need to take into consideration in our in our messaging. Yes, it's certainly something we've observed in the project I work on with, led by Jason Hayes, that's looking at workplace support, that often the persuasive argument is that economic one for employers to consider implementing some sort of support for working carers. It's, it's, the, it's the money they'll save on recruitment and, and, and training and things like that. But I think there are there is a, there's a slight shift towards the bigger well-being picture as well. There are some employers thinking about the well-being of their staff and supporting working carers is a way to promote well-being, not just economic and material well-being, but the more relational, subjective aspects. I think the two dimensions are not mutually ex exclusive. I mean, the social and economic dimensions feed into each other. 
you know, as we, as, as many of my colleagues from NGOs uh, like to put it, the social is economic and the economic is social as well. So, you know, so it's good to have uh, all of these messages in our arsenal when we, uh, when we interact with decision makers. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I also wanted to talk about, again, another area that perhaps is in, interconnected as opposed to very separate. Um, and interchangeable is the connection between the formal and informal or paid and unpaid care and whether they should be seen as entirely distinct and alternative or intrinsically very linked. Yes, it's true. I mean, for a long time uh, and, and, and still today, I mean, the assumption has been that um, the informal caregiving phenomenon in Europe is, is essentially uh, driven by the lack of good quality uh, professional care services. And to some extent, it is, it is related to that. But, but, but it goes beyond that. When we started our dialogue with the European Commission back in 2014, the main narrative was that as a result of demographic aging in Europe, uh, there's a growing need for care and, and carers play a central role in the provision of care, actually, according to some estimates, as much as 80% of all long-term care is, is provided by informal family carers. But also, par you know, as a result of the demographic aging, the pool of informal carers, uh, according to that narrative, uh, will decrease. And again, that's partly true. But the reality of it, and, and that has emerged from research, including EU research in the meantime since 2014, if we were to try and replace informal carers by care professionals, that would mean creating uh, or financing a second long-term care system. So financially speaking, it, 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 is, it is simply impossible. And so we, what we've seen, uh, and we like to think we've, you know, we've also contributed to, to that change of mindset, is that more and more decision makers have come to the idea that what we now need is a combination of professional and informal care. And so the key question for us now uh, does not really lie in uh, convincing people that something needs to be done to support carers but rather on what is the right combination between professional and informal care. Because obviously there is this uh, you know, tendency by some governments to say, okay, let's recognize informal carers, give them some rights and then shift over, uh, de-invest in professional care and shift over some of the responsibilities. And, and there, I must say that the Commission is a great uh, ally when it comes to uh, ensuring uh, that takes place in, let's say, acceptable proportions. And, and we're trying to inform, obviously, that process as well uh, through our work. And, uh, and I, I should say that the Sustainable Care Programme is extremely uh, timely and, and relevant in that regard because it really looks into all of the aspects uh, um, of the question that need to be addressed to usefully uh, inform those uh, discussions. Yes, absolutely. I think the, the name sustainable care, it's about making sure that there is a balance between the various different parts of the system. Otherwise, it's just not, it's not sustainable. You can't overload informal carers. You can't shift. It's not sustainable to try and shift everything to paid care workers. There isn't the capacity to do that. There isn't the financing to do that. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think that's really important. One thing I wanted to ask about, and it, I think it would be remiss of me if we didn't touch on this because it is such a 
important topic and it's so topical is the impact of COVID and um, what, what impact you're seeing on, on carers at the moment? Well, I think first of all, it, it is important to, to remember that um, many of the, the, the challenges that uh, pre-existed the crisis, uh, so, you know, the impact of uh, informal caregiving on, on carers themselves, in terms of access to employment, in terms of access to uh, full-time employment or good quality employment, and particularly for women, in terms of social exclusion and, and poverty, because a lot of carers tend to chip in, in, in the, the cost of care, but also in terms of health uh, and mental health. All of this actually pre-existed the crisis. And so what COVID is, has done is that it, it really has exacerbated exacerbated sorry the you know all of these uh, challenges and uh, and for example what we're seeing uh, based on the the data that's uh, gradually emerging from from our network is that uh, many carers uh, find themselves or have found themselves completely isolated as a result of uh, the confinement measures uh, just like all of us but also uh, as a result of the I guess, understandable reallocation of care services to the most urgent uh, cases. And as a result of that, those support measures that, that carers had access to when in existence, uh, because in many countries in Europe or many regions, uh, there's no such uh, support measure for, for carers. But those support measures have either been uh, drastically reduced or you know, have disappeared altogether. And, uh, and that means that uh, carers uh, were already before the crisis and are still in first line. They've been in many ways forgotten uh, in the you know, communication about the amazing role played by, uh, by the care sector. And, uh, and we're trying to, to draw the attention of decision makers to that, uh, to that issue as well. And, and, uh, and we're seeing, you know, slowly but surely, uh, more and more people, including policymakers, now starting to pay attention to uh, to carers. I guess that's a that's a positive <laughs> to come out of the crisis. So, uh, certainly, our workers in the program, particularly Matt Bennett's work around the impact of COVID on things like food bank use. So there's a lot, an increase of that for carers and poorer mental health outcomes and loneliness and isolation. All those things you touched on. Are all seem to be, as you say, they were there before, but they're, they're, they've been exacerbated. But I, I wonder, on the other hand, if there might be a positive around work-life balance and I reckon perhaps we will never go back to the working patterns we used to have. We'll never, maybe it's going to be unlikely that workforces are all going to do nine to five jobs in offices now that so many of us have been working from home and whether that will but maybe facilitate and help carers or maybe it will make it worse because there isn't that demarcation between work and life anymore. It's all blended. I don't know what, what your view on that is. Yeah, I mean, it's not really clear, is it? Not only for carers, but for all of us, you know, we're all teleworking at the moment uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's really unclear what will happen once the crisis is finally over. Are we going to all go back to the office as, uh, you know, as before? Or are we going to try and, you know, I know that um, I can't picture myself probably spending as much time traveling and in, 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 in even in the office than, uh, 
than before because it's you know I think in the long run it's it's probably not sustainable. But but coming coming back to to carers, I think there are very interesting uh, aspects um, related to the crisis. Uh, for example, you know, and and that's certainly the case in, in the UK. We're seeing a, a completely new population of carers emerging from the crisis. Uh, you know, uh, I think in the UK, it's an additional 3 million people now involved in caregiving as a result of the crisis because of disappearance or limitation in, in services uh, and, and, and the fact that people suddenly uh, find themselves at home with someone in need of care. Uh, so that's a, I think that's a, a phenomenon that's, that does not obviously concern uh, only concern the UK, but the whole of Europe, and is there to have probably a lasting impact on you know on the way people approach caring, caring, and work-life balance. That's one thing. A second very positive or at least interesting aspect is um, the emergence of innovative uh, solutions to uh, to cope with the gap or the, the limitations uh, in care services. And and here I'm thinking about ICT-based solutions. We're seeing, uh, uh, you know, uh, a plethora of innovative solutions, and I'm sure some of them, uh, you know, uh, we will need to evaluate obviously the impact and and, uh, and added value. But some of their of them, you know, uh, should be maintained and uh, and and probably nurtured in the future, and uh, and transferred and promoted across Europe. Uh, so yes. As they say, never waste the opportunity of a good crisis. Uh, we're trying to remain positive and and, uh, and optimistic, uh, but certainly, um, you know, I can confirm that more and more people and policymakers are now interested in in discussions regarding the respective responsibilities between the state and individuals when it comes to the provision of care, and I think that's a good thing. Well, on that positive <laughs> note, I'd like to thank you very much, Stacey, for joining us today on, on the Care Matters podcast. It's a real pleasure and thanks again for inviting me.